0: that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon a sacrificial offering of your faith. The image here just if you're confused, is he's understanding the Philippian church as a living sacrifice. Like Paul says in Romans 12, what the, their life of faithfulness is a living sacrifice. And Paul is equating his ministry as a pastor, as a church planter, as somebody pouring a libation on top of their living sacrifice. He's secondary, not primary. He's thinking about his ministry in terms of a libation or a drink offering upon their faithfulness. That's the image so if I am to do that, verse 17, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Okay, This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, speak to us for your servants here are listening. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we would not just simply hear words from a page, But that we would see Jesus, that we would encounter Jesus, that Jesus would free us, that Jesus would love us, that Jesus would free our hearts to worship Him and make much of Him this morning. Many of us are in different places this morning. We may not even believe in Jesus. We may believe in Him and have trouble trusting Him and following Him. Others of us are quite happy following Jesus. We're so many different places. No matter where we are, Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I have three small boys, as many of you know, and therefore every night at our house, between the hours of 6 p.m. and 8 p.m., there's an epic struggle for obedience. But I'm not talking about my kids and me. I'm talking about me and God. See, I love comfort. I would take the path of least resistance every time and in every way apart from God's work in my life. I'm always tempted to be lazy. I'm always tempted, especially in the hours between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m., to be short with my language. Short with my patience. And I can start treating people like pet animals, frankly. Go, sit, stop. Do this, don't do that. Now I'm kind of making light of it, but it's a serious issue. Because God calls me to relate to everybody, not just my children, but everybody, patiently, gently. Speaking truth in love. Never exasperating, Paul says. God calls me to crucify my own selfish desires in obedience to His desires for me. But I want my way. (laughs) I want my way. And so I want to sit on the couch and scroll on my phone. So like I said, the hours between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m., there is an epic struggle for obedience. It's my heart. And the Lord's will. I think in our cultural moment today, if there is a four-letter word, probably the only four-letter word that we have left is the word obey. If you think about it, Uh, the Barna Group, they surveyed different age demographics uh, recently. They surveyed a group called elders who, according to them, were born between 1945. Boomers who were born between 46 and 64, so post-war boomers. And then busters who were born after 64 on up to around 1983. Elders, boomers, and busters. And it might not surprise you to learn, according to this research, that elders accept authority. They see obedience as a good thing for society. Boomers challenge authority. They see authority as a bad thing for society. Generally speaking, and then busters, as the name implies, they don't listen. They don't accept authority like elders and they don't challenge authorities like boomers. They don't even know the concept of authority. They ask the question, what authority? Obedience isn't even a category. And so when we read a verse like verse 12 in chapter two, as we heard aloud, which says, if we look down. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now. Implying, so now obey. I'm willing to bet your eyes just glaze right over. But the truth is, God calls us to obedience. It cannot be avoided. But what God says about obedience all throughout the scriptures, and especially in this particular passage, might surprise you. In my opinion, this passage offers us an encouraging picture and perspective on obedience to God. And So to break it down for us all, to unpack this, this passage tells us at least three things about obedience as a Bible, as God talks about it. And it's these, and I'll unpack each as we go. The first, obedience is humanly unavoidable. Number two, obedience to God is beautiful. And number three, obedience to God is actually possible. And let's take a look at each. The first being, of course, obedience is humanly unavoidable. The first thing we need to realize, all of us here, myself included, is that obedience is humanly unavoidable. We tend to think that obedience is optional. But the Bible says something different. We need to look at Paul's message to the Roman church to get the full picture, I think. You can turn to Romans 6.16 if you want in your Bibles, or you can just listen along. Because in that verse he says this, in Romans 6.16, he says, Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Paul is saying in this passage, there is no neutral ground. You're either obeying God or you're obeying a God, lowercase g, that leads to death. You're either obeying the living God, which leads to life and flourishing, or you're obeying a false imposter God, which leads to death and enslavement. In other words, obedience is never an option. You will either obey false gods or the true God. A few years ago, uh, the actor Shia LaBeouf, I'm so glad I pronounced that correctly, uh, retreated from public life, if you remember. This was a few years ago. And in an interview, Shia LaBeouf, he gave some of the reasons for his retreat. And one of his reasons, and I'm quoting him now, is this. He says, the requirement of being a celebrity is that you must become an enslaved body. Celebrity status offered him everything. All of his desires... As a celebrity, he was given. But he stepped away from celebrity status because he saw those things that he desired dehumanizing him, enslaving him. Russell Brand, who's very candid, he's also candid about his struggles and compulsion with addiction. And in his recent book, Recovery, he says it best. He says this. He says, we are, speaking as all of humanity, in every time, in every place, we are in a cult by default. Isn't that striking? He says, we are in a cult by default. We just can't see it because its boundaries lie beyond our horizons. Brand admits that every human obeys. So the question is not, do you obey? The question is, who do you obey? And as Brandon implies, are you obeying some unknown cult leader like money, power, success? You don't even know, can't even locate who you're giving your allegiance to on a daily basis. Or are you going to obey the living God who brings freedom? So before we explore what Philippians has to say about obeying God, we must first come to terms with the inevitability of obedience. We must come to terms with the fact that obedience is humanly unavoidable. Okay. Number two. Now we can explore this passage a bit. Because what strikes me is about how beautiful obedience to the living God is. In contrast to obedience to some, as Brand puts it, unknown cult leader. Like money, power, and success. Or comfort, as I confessed earlier. It's so strikingly beautiful. When you read this passage, you may not see the beauty because all you see are the commands. And you're like, "Ooh, ah, ooh, e, I fall short here. I fall short here. I fall short here. But I want you to look at it with eyes where you see the pure sheer beauty that Paul is portraying as he describes life of obedience to God. So obedience to God, after we read this one more time, should not only be understood as unavoidable, but actually beautiful. And so, my professor, Jaron Bars, years ago, he used to say that self-righteousness is one of the ugliest things in the world. But true righteousness is beautiful, and everybody knows it. And the only proof that we need for that is to look at the life of Jesus. It doesn't matter where you fall on the political spectrum. It doesn't even matter where you fall on the philosophical or political spectrum. Everybody recognizes that true righteousness is beautiful, embodied perfectly in Jesus Self-righteousness is ugly. This is when people pretend. This is when people are inwardly fill in the blank, but externally. Oh, I'm so religious. True obedience is beautiful. Just imagine just for a second as a thought experiment. If our church, Hope Presbyterian Church was known to the world, known to Columbus, Ohio, as a community of people who embodied this passage. Not perfectly, but repentantly. <laughs> who, do, who does all things without grumbling. What if we were a community that did all things without grumbling? Which means, grumbling by the way, if you're wondering, means constant criticism and an unwillingness to help. Imagine our community if we did everything, all things. Look at verse 14. The word here is all things. What if we did all things, everything in our community life, we did all things without disputing, which means arguing both internally and externally. That means with our friends and with the people we sit next to, we're always arguing with them. We're always wearing a black hat. We're always asking a counter questions. We're always cynical. We're seeing through everything. And it can also mean our internal heart. We're always disputing in our heart. We're always cynical. We're always seeing through things. Wouldn't it be beautiful if we were a community that never did that? We did all things without that. Or let's continue on down the list. He says that you may be blameless and innocent. What if we were a community that does all things in a way that is blameless, which is what other people say about you? It's a reputation that you have. And innocence, he goes on, which is what you say about yourself. It's having a conscience where you lay your head at night and you say, you know what? I am not a perfect man. I'm not a perfect one. I'm not without sin. But today, oh, I repented and I leaned hard on the grace of Jesus in this struggle of my, of my life. Wouldn't that be beautiful? We would, in Paul's words here, shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. See, our obedience is not just necessary. This is where we get it off track. Our obedience is not just necessary because God is holy. Our obedience is actually desirable because God is beautiful. It's desirable. We want it. God's word here is described as a word of life. It brings life. So obedience is unavoidable. Obedience, so to God is beautiful. But we cannot stop here. We cannot stop here. We have to press in further to Paul's argument here because there is one thing to say. It's one thing to say that obedience is beautiful. It's one thing to say that obedience is inevitable. It's quite another thing to even ask if it's possible. Because many of you, like me, as you're reading this, you're like, yeah, I would like to have a heart that doesn't grumble. That would be awesome. I would love to have a heart that isn't cynical. That would be great. In fact, I would love my neighbor to look at my life and say, man, that is one blameless dude. But we know ourselves, right? And we know what we do. And we know our disputing hearts and our disputing words. We know our hypocrisy. Okay? Okay? So this third point is vital because what Paul does in this passage is he presses in the concept of of obedience to God. He says, obey now, as you always has. But he gives us perspective on the possibility of obedience. Can we even obey? Yes. And here's why. Obedience is possible because of Jesus's external work and because of God's internal work. And we see both at play beautifully in this passage. This entire call to obedience, if you look at verse 12, is on the other side of a single word, therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore as you're reading your Bible or studying your Bible, what's the first thing you should do? You should read the passage above it. Because what you're reading right now follows from what came before. So Paul is saying, therefore, therefore. In light of what I just said. What did he just say? Look above. We could start in verse 6. Which is a poem, a song about Jesus. Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or leveraged. He did not use his divine privileges for himself. What did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, here's the word, obedient. Jesus was obedient to his Father even when it cost him the most. The point of death, even death on a cross. And so, what this means is that when Paul uses the word obedience in our context, we should immediately think of Jesus' obedience. He obeyed for us as the perfect. Human being. He was, as some people call it, as Paul called him, the second Adam. We are all in Adam. And Jesus came as an entirely alien Adam, a different Adam. And he lived a life of obedience that we were all called to live but do not live on a daily basis. And his obedience brought him death, which is what our disobedience earns. So not only does he obey for us, but he dies for us. He absorbs the penalty of all of our disobedience, past, present, and future. And so in light of that, friends, we are called to obey. We are never, hear me, hear me, hear me. We are never, ever called to obey in the Bible in order to gain the acceptance of God. Even the Ten Commandments came after the gracious deliverance from Egypt. How much more in light of Jesus' finished work, the greater exodus? Do we have have a, a better understanding of where our obedience is directed and why it happens? It happens because of what Jesus has done. His finished work. We obey because we are accepted. Many of us, I fear, treat this verse as a way to gain acceptance with God is the exact opposite of Paul's argument. I'm just telling you now, that's unbiblical. Paul says, therefore, in light of Jesus' obedience, obey. He doesn't say, therefore, obey in order to get the acceptance of God. I can't stress that enough. It changes everything. Even the way that Paul says, work out your salvation. In verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You might read that and you might underline that, and you might say to yourself, Well, Joe, Paul is clearly telling me to get saved by working. But you're misreading what he's saying here. He's saying, With fear and trembling, which means sobriety. And we'll maybe get into the way that practically works out in a few moments. But for now, he's saying, Work out your salvation. You have salvation. Now, work it out. Alec Motyer, he compares this to a young couple working on their marriage. They're not working to be married. They're working on their marriage. They have a marriage. They're wearing rings. There was a declaration made by a pastor or by the court of law that says, You are married. Now, work it out. Motyer also compares this passage to working out a math problem. Those of you in school, amen? Who's doing math still? Anybody still doing math? Oh, still? Okay, good. Because I just pull out my calculator or my phone. He says, in the same way you have a math problem, in the same way you have a math problem, you have salvation. You work it out. It's not like your salvation is in the balance. You have it. You unfurl it. You explore its freedom. After all, it is because of Jesus' finished work that we are called some things in this passage. And I'm willing to bet we overlooked the things that we are called. The absolutely cannot changing status words that describe who we are in God's eyes. Did you see them? In verse 12, we're Paul's beloved. In many other locations, were God's beloved as well. We're just going to scan down starting in verse 12. In verse 13, we're the people for whom God is at work in. We're going to get into that passage. So, God is at work in you. That is not doubted in this passage. That is proclaimed. God is at work in you. (laughs) You may not feel like it. That's especially when you need to hear this verse. God is at work in you. Even when He feels absent, He is at work in you. Let's continue. He says, do all things without grumbling, disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Now here, catch it. Children of God. You are a child of God. Again, indisputable. He's not saying so that you would become a child of God. He's saying that you would live out of your status as a child. You are a son and a daughter. You are Jesus's younger brother in his family. And what's more amazing than that is that you have all that Jesus deserves. In fact, he gives you his inheritance. You've been adopted by grace. And these words about being without blemish, these are all promises as well. God promises to take you to these places, to these destinations. Later on, it says here in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, it may be proud. Before that, he says... He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's just just telling you right now, you are lights. So what I would recommend you do, if you have your own Bible, heck, even if you have this Bible, because the next reader needs to see it too. Circle all of the things that you are declared by God's word this morning. Circle these things. Child of God, light. You are those things. Okay, so obedience is possible when we are shocked by Jesus' finished work on our behalf. There's another thing going on though, and it's more amazing, if I dare say it. Obedience is not only possible because of Jesus' finished external work, but obedience is possible because of God's internal work in your life. I said earlier that God is at work in you That is a fact, that is a deep assurance that we can indeed choose life instead of slavery and death. Our obedience is in some mysterious way empowered by God himself. Verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. For his pleasure that means that God is at work in you even when you sin God is at work in you and he's at work in you to, both to will or to desire and to actually do that which God is calling you to do. so I described my struggles between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. to just be a Joe Hack centered human being and just see the whole world is centered around me. those are the if you want to pray for your pastor, pray for me between the hours of 6 and 8 p.m. And I know I'll pray for you all as well. In that moment, I can trust that God is at work in me to desire to obey His will as a Father. And not only desire it, but do it. Isn't that amazing? Think of the deepest struggle that you have right now. Gossiping at school. Gossiping at work. Deepest struggle you have. Addictions. Think of them. Bring them up to mind. And now say in your heart with God's word, he is at work in my life to not only desire what he wants in this area, but to actually do it. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's there working in you. I've shared before in different sermons about how one of my. Former professors likes to say that there are really three motivations for exercise. Have you heard me say this before? I always come back to it whenever I get motivated to exercise, like I am right now uh, at the beginning of the year. The first is this like, let's say you decided y'all want to run again, okay, after a long hiatus. He's like, well, there's a couple motivations that might be behind that desire to run. Number one might be this fear. You saw your parents or your grandparents have heart issues or other issues, and you are afraid that you will walk down that path and so you start exercising. Your, your doctor said, if you don't exercise, this is going to happen to you. And now you are afraid. So every time you drive to LA Fitness, every time you put on your running shoes to run outside, there is a lot of fear going on in your heart. It's like you're running away. Remember that app where you can run away from zombies? And that is supposed to impel you to run. Do you remember that? Some of you may want to use this. Basically, you're listening to an audio... Story about zombies coming after you and it helps you stay on pace. It's amazing. We're gamifying everything. Why? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of all kinds of things. The second, though, motivation might be a sort of what I'll call culinary freedom. Now, this is where I am. You can eat anything, right? This way I can just be free. I don't have to have any discipline in my eating at all. I don't have to worry about anything. I can just eat whatever. Why? Because I exercise. So when you put on your running shoes, and when you go to LA Fitness, what's going on in your heart? Just indulgence. That's what's going on in your heart. You're like, I can't wait for McDonald's after this. (laughs) Well, both of these disrespect the exercise. How? They disrespect running. I wish our runners were in here. I know who you are. But it disrespects running because they reduce running to a means to an end. Or fill in your exercise. It's a means to an end. Which is the strangest thing on earth. In fact, there are people who are training for marathons who say, I hate running. What is going on there? I hate running, and yet I'm running a 26.2 mile race. It's because of what's on the other side of the marathon that they're running. You see? Which brings us to the third motivation for training or for exercise the joy of it. The joy of it. Apparently, it is possible to enjoy running. But that is when the means becomes the end. When you're running because of the, it's an end in and of itself. Well, Paul here this morning is pressing us to examine our motivation for obedience. We must not obey God to get something from him. We already have everything in him, including him working in our lives. So we may not, hear me, we may not obey him in order to get his acceptance. It's excluded from this passage. Instead, we start to obey God for the joy of it. Do you notice the joy language? Verse 17 and 18, at the end of his life of obedience, hard won, hard fought obedience, Paul can say, oh, that it would be joy and rejoicing. And I pray for you as well. And so we come to a place of obedience for the joy of it. We start to see joy at the other end of obedience. And this can only happen when we see how he empowers your obedience, even when you fail. Him. So three just quick final thoughts as we conclude this morning. Are you like me and every other else in the Buster generation? I don't know what comes after the Buster generation. I don't. I really don't. I like Buster because it takes me out of the millennial camp. I like that. Because it says busters are up to 83. Apparently millennials started in 1980. You know, I have have like a lot of sinful pride in in wanting to distance myself from the millennial generation. But here I am as a buster. I do think obedience is a weird foreign concept. I have to struggle. I have to struggle to press in to see the goodness of it. The beauty of it. The joy of it. Well, if you're like me and you think obey is a four-letter word... Consider how obedience to joy is the path of joy. obedience to God is the path of joy. It's the path of joy. So let me just break it down this way. If you look down again at verse 12 and 13, these are really two ideas that are in tension with each other, and actually a beautiful marriage together. Verse 12 describes us working out the salvation we've been given with a sobriety, a sort of a fear and a trembling. And then verse 13 describes God's just sheer action in every avenue of our obedience, both the will and the action, both the will and the working. And so if you are a person, this is a real good test. You learn a lot about somebody's spiritual life on what they underline. Okay, If you give random people in the church these two verses, what do they underline? So if you're a verse twelve er out there, any verse 12ers out there, uh, then you are going to rely on yourself and you will burn out. Any verse 13ers out there, you're just hammering out and you're underlining verse 13 and you're like, man, all I have to do is receive and receive and receive and receive and receive. You will be too far away from God's call to pursue obedience, even especially when it's costly. You are too far away from that. But if you are both 12 and 13, you will experience joy. Number two, what do you do when you disobey? What goes on in your heart when you come to terms with your disobedience? And this is revealing as well. The answer to that question says a lot about what you believe about God. If when you disobey and you realize you disobey, you think it's no big deal, then you're probably a verse 13-er. If, on the other hand, you are crushed, you are probably a verse 12-er. But if you are both, verse 12 and 13, then you will have a godly sorrow followed quickly by the deepest kind of joy. Because you see Jesus' love for you. Deep sorrow and deep joy in an instant. Number three. I want us all to camp out on what God calls you, and so if you 're constantly racked with shame and as I said earlier, circle every description of you in this verse, beloved in whom God works, circle that one, child of God, light, and just say this to yourself: disobedience cannot change these statuses, and rest in those and delight in those so that we might be a church that walks through this door of obedience to greater and greater and greater and greater and greater. And greater. Joy as we hold on to and hold out this word of life that He is offering us. It's a gift. This life He's calling to us is a gift. The fact that He's freeing us to walk in it is a.